Hi there, this is Matthew Mercer, resident game master here at Critical Role, to welcome you to this podcast version of the show. If you'd like to watch the stream as it airs, you can catch it Thursdays at 7 p.m. Pacific on twitch.tv slash critical role or youtube.com slash critical role. Twitch subscribers can access the video on demand immediately after the broadcast, and it also becomes available on YouTube Mondays at 12 p.m. Pacific. Podcast episodes land right here on the Critical Role Podcast Network on Thursdays a week after the initial broadcast. Okay, with that info dump out of the way, let's dive into the story. Welcome to our Game Masters of Exandria Roundtable. I am Matthew Mercer, joined by Brennan Lee Mulligan and Brie Iyengar. The three of us have learned a lot from one another, and tonight we hope we can share some of that with you. So we hope this roundtable covers some of your most burning questions and is helpful to any Game Master, but especially those hoping to play in the world of Exandria. But before we dive in, a shameless reminder that this book is available now. Uh, with my co-designers Hannah Rose and James Hayek, we made Tal'Dorei Campaign Setting Reborn to be a handy resource filled with lore, creatures, character options, and advice for running a campaign in the continent of Tal'Dorei. Uh, so many amazing writers contributed to this book, including Abria, right over here, Ooh, who kept parts of the book hidden from me so I could play an EXU. Uh, but more on that later. Uh, we are all so excited for more folks to play in the world of Critical Role, and we wanted to give you a little peek behind the curtain at our inspirations, in hopes that they help you build your own stories and expand the world at your own tables. So, without further ado, uh, let's jump into tonight's Game Masters of Exandria Roundtable. All right, so this is kind of freeform, you know, mainly just asking each other questions, pulling prompts where you feel it's necessary, and conversing about it and sharing what knowledge we got. Um, that. I guess to kick it off, let's talk about building a game, Ooh, okay. uh, getting getting started with the process of getting a campaign ready, or you know, getting characters together. Like, uh, let's start with tips for session zeros, which I'll just start off with saying like they're really important. Um, Got to do them. They're not like absolutely necessary if you already have a group that you gel with, but if you can, I highly recommend it because even if you do. It's a really great experience and opportunity to one, make sure everyone's on the same page, yeah. to make sure the themes are conveyed properly, everyone knows the expectations and the lines and veils of who's comfortable with what at the table. Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you guys love and what do you particularly recommend when it comes to session zeros? Oh yeah. I think for me, especially if you're, like, if you're playing with a table that you already know, I like it as just like a tone check-in, mm -hmm. especially if you're coming off of like, this is a group and we play a bunch of things together. Uh, I love the just sort of affirmation of tone before you start a new kind of story. And that way you're not kind of hitting the same beats that you did before and everyone has a chance to sort of decide to make a new choice for a new game mm -hmm. and a new story that I think is really, it's, it's a little, little amuse-bouche before <laughs> your new game to like get the, the old flavor out. And so that's that's my favorite thing. Other than like establishing lines and veils, like I'm, I love safety tools. I love uh, having like little check-in things and X cards and stuff on the table. That's my jam. But yeah. Which uh, for those who don't know about that or oh, yeah. are uncertain about what safety tools are referring to, uh, you can search online for tabletop RPG safety tools. Google it. Lines and veils in Google, and there are many great <laughs> breakdowns put out by a number of great people in the community that outline exactly what these tools are for and how to easily incorporate them. Yeah. Uh, Brennan, what you got, bud? 
for session zero, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, boy, for, for, for session zero. <laughs> okay, take a minute. Take a minute. I, I'm sorry. We're just being so serious. I, I mean, know. We're having a great time. I I never had it. Can we just say what happened, which is that you opened up the world of Exandria, the greatest fantasy Holy. world of all time, and we got to come and yes. do stories in it? Matt, uh. Matt, I don't like high fantasy. This is my favorite world. Yeah, this is dope and cool, and thanks for letting us come and play in it. It was really nice. It was all an accident. (laughs) (laughs) This world wasn't meant to happen. It just kind of happened on accident, and then uh, it kept growing like uh, like the blob, and then uh, a great movie if you haven't seen it, depending on which one you watch. Uh, And then uh, better people came in to help me expand it even further. So equal, I'm 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 very very happy. I'm very excited and very grateful. It's very. I love hearing you say like it's an. It's made me think of the fucking um, cursing. Uh, The made me think a lot here. Okay, uh, balls. (laughs) Um, So many cusses. (laughs) uh, The show. I know, but it made me think of the 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 running the gag inside joke, the James Lipton questionnaire of of like. When you die and yeah. you meet God at the pearly gates, because as the creator of Exandria, the idea of getting to the pearly gates and meeting God and being like, <gasps> and him being like, listen, I'm going to level with you. I got no idea what the <laughs> fuck is going on. I got no yeah. clue yeah. what's, help, help, no. get in here. Um, <laughs> it's weirdly spiritually affirming to me. Yeah. Session zero. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, session. Talk about setting the tone, and now we've properly set it. the tone for this. Yes. So. yes. Uh, um, the Alexandria GM roundtable semicolon the illusion of control. Yes. Um, Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, that's I, real I, as hell. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. We're Shout out to Amy Carrero. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't oh. know which of the six D twenty core cast to even say. It's all. Of them. It's really all. All of, them. of the above. All of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what? So I guess what I would say with session zero is, I. Um, there's a great quote by, I don't know if it's like Voltaire or someone, but the thing about like, I apologize for not writing you a short letter. I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I had to write you a long one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that idea about the time it takes to make something short. So I really, at, at Dimension 20, because it's so short in the anthology pieces, you know, our longest seasons are 20 episodes. Yeah. Session zeros are critical. They're critical, right? Because there's an element of, um, you know, I was. I just talked. We were recording this on a day where we also randomly did the Twitter Spaces for Calamity earlier today, where people were yeah. talking about like player agency versus railroading, right? <laughs> Which is interesting, right? Because there is. I think that is a false dichotomy. Yeah. yeah. Because people, you know, the, the, always your players will do things that you don't expect. However, the way you get around the way you get around the fact that a shorter campaign especially one with pre-built sets especially one that needs to hit certain things at certain times it doesn't have a lot of freedom to it the way if for, and for anyone out there running a one shot or doing something like that let's say you're you want to run something in Taldore and you know that there's a set limit of time on it. I used to run a game at a summer camp where it's like hey August 28th this has got to be over <laughs> everyone's going back to different states um, the way you handle that and put that together right is essentially that you need rails, but it does suck for those rails to come from the dungeon master. So what you can do in a session zero is do really definitive, deep character development and go, who are these characters? Which is, I think, a big part of doing um, planning as a dungeon master is, at least for me, what I use session zeros for is like, look, I have a small amount of time to get this done. 
I need to know everything about you because that's what the rails are gonna be. The rails are gonna be who you tell me you are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that way you grant this full degree of player agency and give yourself the ability to um, create rails that were designed by the players, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, which is really, that's the best of both worlds. That's getting having your cake and eating it too. So for me, session zeros, I don't even just have one. I'll have, I like to do character creation all in the same room. God, can mm -hmm. you can you talk about your character, Jen? Because like, I think that's the thing, or sort of, not singularly, because you, you're, I mean, blew me away. <laughs> it's crazy. It felt, I felt crazy being like, I have half a thought. And then like, after talking to you for two hours, I'm like, I know everything about Laren. And also I know you do, because there were like really cool moments in Calamity where you were feeding me and it wasn't a railroad. It was like, oh, you understand exactly what Laren's motivations are. So you can help me like see them and be like, yeah, of course. Yeah, you're right, I don't hear that cool prophecy. I hate this tree. <laughs> a, a million percent, which is like, and I think, so I think that for like that, doing character creation all at the same table, it's just that those, the, the, the shorter a campaign's gonna be, the more prep work ahead of time can enable you to achieve these objectives in a way that feels organic. Mm -hmm. So we do character creation all together. Like for example, in I have a 13 year home game that did not have multiple session zeros. We, 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 I had one night 13 years ago, <laughs> I was 21 years old and we were at my buddy Jack's place in Bronxville and I went like, here's the world. What do you guys want to be? And they all make characters on the spot. And I said, sounds good. Because we, I knew that the joy is we were going to play and find out. We had the benefit of time and uh, this like surging saga that we'd be able to find all that stuff. In a shorter run, you do character creation all together because the group needs to have a cohesive identity. The characters need to have a cohesive identity. And again, the easiest way to hit plot objectives if you have those constraints is to have, rather than be like, I need to guess what everyone's gonna do, you just go, what do you think you're gonna do? And you do that, and then they will be kind enough to just tell you, yeah. uh, and then you get to prep around that. Yeah, I was gonna jump into that too and say one of the cool things beyond just figuring out your character, and you hit on this a little bit, uh, your character's objectives and kind of where you hope to see them go or what mysteries you want to lay out for the you know, the GM to grab onto and maybe introduce as part of their story um, is the inner character relationships. Because, yeah. I mean, growing up and playing this game, beginning when I began my history as a GM, people would just come with their characters and throw them into the pot and see what happens, which is a fun way to do it. Um, but that's how Vox Machina started. But then even then we were all creating characters together and that's when Laura and Liam went like, let's make them twins. And now they came into the game with a pre-established relationship. They yeah. got to talk on their own, and they already walk in with a further realized dynamic between the two of them that affects how the rest of the party comes together. Um, with the Mighty Nine, I did a session zeros independently with each character, so that everyone had an opportunity to kind of like really think about it one on one uh, and play with it a bit. And then we did a session zero where they brought some of the characters together, um, so that once again, beyond just being a well-realized character, they had some pre-established relationships that then they could come in and feel comfortable having somebody to lean on in this kind of creative soup of, I don't, I'm beginning a new adventure. How do I find this? Where do I ground myself in there? And to the point of, of calamity, deeply, deeply set relationships that all of you work together in advance of this, that when you jumped into the game, you already knew each other's characters. You had, yeah. you know, overt and secret histories with each other and all of these layers of goals and secrets you had between each other that just made the rest of it so juicy. And you wouldn't have that 
unless you established a proper extensive session zero to let that build. Um, I, yeah. I the, do, oh, well, you go, no, no, you, you go. You do it. You do it. Finish Fight. your thought. I was gonna just say the, the <laughs> uh, uh, that idea of like, so like the sessions of a character generation being its own thing, following up with those individual, like what really makes your character tick, and then having even like a session, this is more for like actual play, mm. but having a session zero where the cameras aren't rolling, yeah. so that Ooh, someone can yeah. be like, hello, 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 I'm, no, I'm not doing that for us. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. so, bail, bail. session zero isn't enough, you know? <laughs> Look at being in campaign two, and Sam's not, it's like, hello, I'm not, it lasted like three episodes, it just went away, and we're like, yeah, it's, it's for the best. Sometimes you just, <laughs> we all agree to forget, yep. and that's good. But I do have a question about, like, for a longer form campaign, and I and knowing that uh, for like the main campaigns on CR, uh, you you're doing a lot of like homebrewing for your players too. Like, mm -hmm. what is character creation like when you know that your players are going to have to sit in a character for roughly a hundred thousand hours? That that's part of the yeah. the conversation I have with the players. Though I'm one, I don't ever want to tell them. You know, you should be this. You know, it's always about like, what do you want to play? What inspires you? And talk with the other players so you all feel like you have a comfortable group that, you know, overlaps in ways that doesn't feel like you're, you know, contradicting each other or that you're, you don't feel unique enough in the, in the setting. Um, but also ask them questions of like, is this something that you're excited about in the long run? Yeah. And, you know, here are the things that we can do if it ends up not being as excited, we can always pivot, you know? There's people that are very stringent, you know, your character is locked in this as you go forward, but if that's not fun for your group and it doesn't hurt anybody at the table, you know, if you can go in partway into a campaign and if they're not liking their character, they can sunset that character yeah. and they can make a new one or they can, you know, transition into a different narrative element. Just because a person started their first 10 levels as a paladin doesn't mean they can't discard it and start life yeah. as a warrior and not necessarily multi-class, but yeah. just switch over to it if discard it's fun. Discard those mechanics, get rid of levels, reskin, do a different <laughs> yeah. thing. I love that, I love that so much. That, that makes such a great narrative thing. Fun, like. Here's so here's another funny question too. When you don't, what are the tactics you guys use to get around situations where, for logistical reasons, you couldn't have a session zero? You know what I mean? Like Ooh. you're thrown into a stream, you're doing a one yeah. shot, something else. Like how like how do you bring that uh, like the things you would normally get out of a session zero into something in media res? I'm a huge fan of the like giving everyone their like opening moment by themselves to just be like, okay. Here's your opportunity to explain who the fuck you are. And we're all gonna take notes together and be like, what are your priorities in this early moment? Uh, Cause yeah, there's been many a like charity game where it's just like, hey, this came together 11 minutes ago and I'm like, I've seen nothing, I know nothing. Who are you? What is this? What are we, what do we care about? Oh, you're a monster, tight. Okay, 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 yeah. And to that point, if you don't have time to do a session zero, yeah. You can just email a set of questions yeah. to the players. Be like, just to get them thinking about it, because yes. they can be like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wizard who's good with fire magic. You're like, cool, but what's something they regret from their childhood? Yes. They're like, huh? Oh. And you just just give them a few prompts, some questions you can email them. You can do them all across the board to all the players, or if you have a little time, you can tailor them to each character to be unique. Ask them questions about, you know, uh, who who else in the party owes you a favor and why? Yes. You know, who else in the party uh, do you hold a grudge against and why. You know, just give them little tidbits that can kind of help replace some of those conversations that happen in session zero to get them thinking so when they do show up at the table, you've tricked them into putting a little more thought into who they're gonna be playing and how they're gonna come to the table prepared. Love that. 
Write that down. Sucker your players into caring about the characters and each other. <laughs> Boom. There's Boom. not. I don't. I mean, I'll be. Let's let's just also acknowledge. Like, there's nothing. I'll just like. There's nothing you can do if the players don't care. Like mm. at the end of the day, you know, it's like I don't care how good of a GM you are. Like the players are the driving energy of the game. Like, like I truly feel like the weird thing about all these tabletops as a GM is weirdly it's like you're a one person Greek chorus. Like you're the supporting mm -hmm. cast. The story has to follow what's happening out there. And I feel like there's a weird analogy I always like of like you find out when you're baking, you'll find out what you didn't put into the mix in the oven. Like you find out yeah. way too late what's not there. <laughs> yeah. And I feel that way all the time when people make characters and they'll get three or four sessions into something and be like, it's not clicking for me. Is there, there's something happened this session that wasn't fun, and you're like, it has nothing to do with this session. You made a character with no connection to the world that they're from, mm. or you made a character that has no history, and be, it, like people, there's like complicated things about backstory. I don't think you need all the backstory in the world. What backstory is there to do is to give you a sense of trajectory. Mm. Where you are coming from informs where you are going, and it's the yeah. going that's essential. So people will be like, I don't need backstory, and you're like, cool, where's your momentum coming from? Like, what's, how are you moving? Because if you start with someone who's like, what's up? I have a, a class and spells and magical gear and literally no desires and no attachments. And you're like, buddy, that's enlightenment. I don't know what to tell you. You're actually done. You're, you win. You beat the game. You beat the game. You have no attachments and no desires? You have no goals? No enemies or friends? Who are you? So yeah, that stuff I think is momentum and it create, if you, there's precious little I feel I can do do if a player doesn't have those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even then, like, depending on, on the style at the table, it can be fun to explore that in the moment. Like, my, one of my best friends in high school, who was one of the first people I GM'd for, Ian, loved him to death. His character was a randomly wandering martial artist on a search for power. Whoa. And that was his whole backstory. And you know what? We had fun. We had fun finding out what that power was, finding out where he was wandering, finding out what happened to his parents, because everyone in D&D has dead parents. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, and you just kind of find it as you go along. So, so yeah, you don't, don't feel like, uh, you know, to your point, every player has to necessarily feel like they are going to write a 40-page yeah. backstory, and you don't really want that necessarily. You know, one page is good for me, you know, two pages more. At a certain point, it becomes a little challenging to incorporate all the details of, of the yeah. story if, if there's expectation to it. But if it's just for the personal, you know, the personal player use, that's totally fine. Yeah. There are real life humans that don't have 40 pages of backstory. You yeah. know what I mean? Like you don't have to go <laughs> yeah. nuts. Yeah. It's just like the idea of yeah, and I think that's right. Of like the the detail is less significant, I think, than the idea of in improv. We used to talk about the feeling of like. When does your character have justification versus when they don't? Which is like improv terminology of like, do you know what motivates their unusual behavior, right? Um, and I never found a way to articulate it, but I always knew the feeling of it. And it felt like the Iron Man, that last moment yes. where something clicks. Yeah. That's how much backstory you need. Yeah. And that can be a sentence or it can be a book. Yeah. But when you go, got it. Yeah. I will say under that too, expectation of backstory integration. Um, for me, I've always considered a character backstory that is delivered to the GM uh, is an invitation to play with it, but it shouldn't be an expectation. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I've seen some conversations in the space in the past, people being like, I wrote an extensive backstory, my GM never made it its own story. And it's like, well, 
different stories find their way of happening naturally in the world based on how the players interact and how the GM wants to run the game. Um, it's definitely an invitation, and if you do want to see that come to fruition, that's a conversation you should have in a session zero with the GM to go. be like, hey, these are th there are some elements of this that would be cool to explore if it fits within your story, and just let them know that that's something that you are excited about as a player to maybe get into. But if you just like pass the paper over and silently wait for the next three years for something to pop up and then get angry that it never happened, yeah. that's a lack of communication. And once again, like a lot of the problems that happen at the table just come from a lack of communication. Truly. Yeah. Uh, my favorite tip for the like extensive backstory people and people who like are like, I have backstory, but I forgot to send it because I'm also that person sometimes <laughs> uh, is uh, right before the game starts asking everyone at the table, like pulling them to the side and asking them really quick, like, what's your backstory? Mm -hmm. Because someone that wrote 40 pages is going to remember the thing they care about the most. That's and great. for those who like didn't come up with enough, they will generate something in the moment as they talk. And I'm like, got it. I got the most important thing, and I read the 40 pages, but you actually only care about this one nugget right now, at least. So that's the one I'll remember and carry through in the beginning. We can revisit uh, the other 39 pages later. <laughs> See, I think I definitely fall on the other side of the spectrum in terms of, like, for me, when I get the 40 pages of backstory, like, and again, ultimately it is agreement and conversation about what's the game you all want to play together. Yes. For me, I am lazy. So <laughs> when someone hands me 40 pages of backstory, I go, oh, plot hooks you'll bite on every time? Thank you. And I, so in other words, there's an element of like, I, I you know, uh, when I, like I often poke my PCs for that stuff because I want to go like, hey, what's the, what's the stuff that is going to be like slam dunks for me? Right, like, yeah. like I that I can stick because, uh, like, uh, um, you know, with D twenty, I make I would say I make like thirty percent of the world, and that's when we do character generation, and then people pitch stuff, and I was like, no clerics, no clerics at all, don't develop gods underline, <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know what I mean, like yeah. literally yeah. being like, where is your interest going to be? Because yeah. it helps me save on prep time, and it makes sure that I don't miss when it comes to plot hooks, because it's never going to be like, I don't know, you know, like, a mysterious necromancer in the corner of the tavern. They're like, fuck this guy. What's up with this dude? And I, I'm like, your uncle, right? The guy you said you don't like and you swore to kill? He's here. You know, like. Bolo. Sorry. Bolo, please. Mm -hmm. Goddamn Bolo. Oh, Bolo's the yes. best. <laughs> Killer die for Bolo. That's, that's our next novel, is the whole Bolo yes! saga. Legacy. Bolo. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Uh, Another interesting point, uh, as far as like getting GMs prepped in the early stages, um, since Taldore or Xandria in general is an established setting, and this is a conversation that I'm, I'm interested to have as well, um, that can be daunting for people who are newer old players. I personally, as I've learned to GM, I would just create my own settings because I was too scared to dive into established settings, like Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk when I first got into D&D. And so I understand there can be a, a reticence or a an anxiety about not wanting to ruin a setting or not wanting to run it incorrectly. Yeah. And I think this would be like kind of a, a good conversation to have on how to get past that fear and ways to ways to prepare yourself for something like this if it's something you really wanted to do. Well, the nice thing I'll say is uh, no one would ever uh, correct you uh, about running Taldoria wrong. I, you never had that fear, yeah, right? I, yeah, I actually was super like confident yeah. and I was like, yeah. you know what's gonna be good is, yeah. to, is to run 
in a campaign setting where the shit I have to make up on the spot immediately becomes canon. Yeah, that's fine. And that's going to be fun, actually. Yeah. That's going to be super not stressful. <laughs> this is going to be good for me. It's a great topic. We're going in a great direction. This is good. This, this is, is good. Wonderful. I love it. The good news is, for the majority of you, it will not be uh, live streamed uh, to the internet, so you can fuck it up as much as you want, uh, and no one, no one's going to poke you about it on the internet. Yeah, dude. Fucking ice white in the face. <laughs> Hey, try it when the guy that made the world is at your table. <laughs> you were like, great. <laughs> Thank you. I, but, the, yeah, I mean, people know this, but I literally, it was like Danny Carr with a blowgun in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> if I say some shit that's not true, <laughs> please, please, help me. <laughs> but I, all of that to say, uh, it's, yeah. So don't do it. Don't, don't even try is the thing. No, uh, I, I think, yeah, the way you kind of put it where this feels the way it feels like when you run a, like any sort of campaign or source book where you know that there's a possibility that someone at the table will know the setting a little better than you because anyone can buy the book and study harder than you did because you were doing all of the things to like build a story and uh, know 100% uh, all the lore. Uh, I think it's just the idea of one, if you have the ability to, uh, take a break and go look something up. I, I think there's this weird tension, especially when people watch a lot of actual play, to be perfect immediately. Uh, video games have like buffering. You can just be like, I have to poop real bad, and then take the book into the back and study for five minutes and come back out with the answer that you want or the like lore that you needed or like, Players are always going to go in the direction that you're not. You, one thing you didn't prepare, and they're going to go sprint that way. So give yourself a little bit of grace. I think is the yeah. the first part of also, being comfortable. I'll also say to that too, um, as part of the session zero, beginning of a campaign, establish this is your version of the setting. Yes. You know, if you really want to be hardcore in the canon, you can. But really, and and that was the intent with writing, you know, Tadori Reborn and writing Wild Mount Book was to ensure that this was information that you could use that it's meant to be helpful, that you can take and use as much as you want to the letter or break it apart and make it and customize it however you want to for your own setting at home. Uh, just letting your players know that this is your version of the world. Some things will be considered the same, some things might change, some things might contradict, and that's intended because it's yours, not mine. Not yours, not yours, it's yours. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's good. I love You that. answered that too good. I, I, was, I was making it up. Yay. Yay. There's what's the prompter saying now? Are we supposed <laughs> oh, to I can't that? read anymore. Why did I take my glasses off? Huh. Uh, okay. <laughs> what's he saying? I was doing it sincerely. Alexandria I... is a labor of love and collaboration. <laughs> yes. And as part of that conversation, Abria, what was it like creating Near It All Park? Ooh, thanks for asking. <laughs> uh, can't stick in that voice. <laughs> Just let it drop. Uh, it was so okay. Uh, man, EXU is so cool. It's so it's such a beautiful thing to have been able to start off in a like established place and be like, here's like. Let's play all the greatest hits. Like here's Amon and those things that we know and love. And looking at uh, the it, yeah, the moment we were able to move and create something new was that was like the gift because you get your opportunity to say like here's the theme that I take from this world that I love so much. And as someone who didn't get raised in high fantasy, 
to me, the interesting part of this world and like this sort of Campbellian monomyth that you play with a group and improvise is that idea of aggregating power and deciding what you're gonna be. And it's usually a hero, but not always. And uh, yeah, Nierdal Pak was my little love letter to the idea of being at the precipice because the brief was very fun for that first calamity. They were right at level two going into three, knowing that half of the cast was going to take their characters into a long form campaign and then pick all of their subclasses while we were playing. That idea of like power undifferentiated and being in the moment making the decision about the person and the hero you wanted to be. I wanted to create a little city that sort of lived in the like, we don't really see the difference between like divine power and nature power and arcane magic. It's all just uh, potential and what you want to do with it. So it, it ended up being like a fun little theme. And then uh, I just wanted to add a bunch of vowels. That's all, that's it. I mean, that, that's honestly the trick. Add <laughs> yeah! vowels, add apostrophes, make it look fancy. Uh, I mean, you're not going to get a more solid GM tip than throw an apostrophe in there. Yo, get that in there. <laughs> that's good. Get it in there. I love that. They're kind of like Promethean uh, in-between space, that liminal space yeah. of, of, of possibility. Uh, that's so fun. Thank you for, for adding to the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. I ugly cried when I saw the first mock-up of the map, and it was on there, and I was like, oh. <laughs> Ryan, my poor husband, was like, I don't know what to do. Like, he just stood there as I just, like, scream-sobbed at my cat because it was real and a part of it. That was great. Was, yeah, so yeah, thank yeah. you for that weird moment in my relationship that Ryan <laughs> had, like, Happy once to a provide. month. Yeah. It makes me joy. <laughs> I, I think I've said this with you before as well. Like, I, I, I despise the, uh, the auteur theory of world-building and, and creation, you know, I mean, in film in general, but, like, you know, in this instance, the idea of one person uh, is the author of a space and kind of domineers over the what's right and what's wrong of that. Um, this was, once again, all created kind of out of accident and the, ne the necessity for it to build and as it kind of took on a life of its own, uh, nothing has been more fun and more exciting than, than watching it grow beyond me. You know, like, and I, I feel like, like, you know, as a person who's not a parent, this is the closest thing I have to, to a child is this world and, and watching other people kind of become family to it as well and kind of adding and, and, and developing it in their own way. It's, it's, it's really kind of, it's something story special. Babies? I think, I think we got story babies. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Right. Speaking of story babies, let's talk about uh, what you did. Yes. Because uh, I got a place, you got a time. Yes. What was it like building out the like sort of legendary Age of Arcanum? Uh, for the for the record, I was so much more relieved to have a t like. I think what you pulled off with the first EXU and then Kaimal after it is so much scarier to me and such a bigger lift because as much because I'm I'm sure people look at Calamity and are like, how you could fuck up the past and change the future. <laughs> but to me, well, I was but to it's me I was like I was, I was like, counting them. I was like mm. <laughs> <laughs> halfway there we were like <laughs> wait. <laughs> I had a button to shut it down if it got yeah, to three. I was ready. Here's the thing. That's when you funny. don't have those first when you don't have those first two because it's because it goes one in twenty, one in four hundred, one in eight thousand, one in 160,000 or 1.6 million? Or, uh, uh, in any case, it's, <laughs> the first two 20s take it down from either 160,000 or 1.6 million all the way down to uh, one in 400, <laughs> which is way more <laughs> likely. Um, uh, no, but to, to me, the, 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 like, 
I was very intimidated by the idea of having the past behind you, which is what EXU the situation is, is you have the full weight of the canon there. Weirdly, when it was, when I, uh, uh, you know, Matt was talking to me about like, oh, like EXU, here's all the, like here's all the corners of the world that, that warrant exploring. And Matt threw out the age of Ar Arcanum and I was like, that was not said by accident. Like that's a part of this world that Matt loves. And the entire AOR arc in C2 uh. is, I mean, you know, there's a million of my favorite arcs, but that one does stand out as being like, what an incredible piece of world building because fantasy, like what Exandria nails and what Matt nailed in C2 is fantasy's bad with time. Fantasy is bad with time. All respect to J.R.R. Tolkien. I'll cry every time Theoden's on screen or in the book for the rest of my life. A sore day, a red day, as the air the sun rises. But uh, uh, we gotta, we gotta get to uh, Return of the King. Oh um, my God. We gotta get there. We'll get you there. We'll get you there. But, the, but like, like you know, I've called it out in the past that like in in Middle Earth. Like the best sword that ever got made got made 10,000 years ago. And if you compare that to the real world advancement of weapons technology and Earth, you start to go like, how are blacksmiths doing emotionally? Are they okay? <laughs> They're all doing bad. They're all like, yeah, I guess there was an elf uh, a long time ago who made the best thing there's ever goddamn been. <laughs> and what's so great about Exandria is that it, it exists in time. Matt is so good about having fucking holidays and a calendar yes. and time moves and it creates a feeling of reality uh, to all these things and when you go into C2 with with uh, Aeor you get the feeling of like no 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 this like yes we have this lapsarian Edenic thing that's necessary for fantasy of like like how do you populate a world with tons of dungeons and magic items that are unexplained you need some long ago time and in Middle Earth Tolkien kind of just goes like yeah shit was dope back then and it stopped being dope anyway um, <laughs> and <laughs> It's, I'm verbatim, that's what he said. Um, that's what he said. But with <laughs> Calamity, there's this incredible in-world explanation for how this stuff got lost. Yeah. So it was, uh, oh, this is, I, I'm sorry I take 40 minutes to answer a no, question. No, uh, My brain, I'm so, I apologize. Your brain Daddy. is good. We're here, but, We're here for the But the, the point being, it was an incredible time to go back to. And it was really exciting to go back there because it was basically, as an improviser, the ability to yes and all of the implications of this deeply tragic, horrifying, you know, you get to Aeor, Cognosa, the Genesis War, you know, like all this stuff, you get into this thing, the, the, the Immensus Gate, and you start going like, this was not like now. And it's, you know, and it's, it, it's, it's different. You get to this world and you're like, this place was bureaucratic and Byzantine and it's things aren't like this anymore how strange and you see visions of a more technologically advanced which is a big departure from the Tolkien thing it's not just like oh people were more magical back then it was like no 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 there was a whole system going on um so that was so everything with Avalier and everything in Calamity was a huge yes and and a huge ability to like basically tap into a piece of like storytelling DNA and go okay 
spread that out. Like what what's the what's the evolution tree that comes off of like that Aeor arc from C2? Yes. Uh, and it was a goddamn dream. And and specifically to be in the ancient past was I felt like a big load off to be like, I'm gonna go into the ancient past, I'm gonna sideswipe to an unnamed sky city, and we're gonna make something where the where like it's it's going to sort of like have a little bit of space for six of the best players in the world to fuck my shit up and not ruin anything in the canon. Um. But also, you you explained the Shattered Teeth, which is fucking dope. That was so cool. That, that was, was delicious. There was, there was some, some of the, my favorite stuff that came out of talking with Matt in that one were like, because I think that we were talking about it before, because in the early stuff of that, it was like, yeah, where where does Avalier go? Like, it's bopping around. It's sort of this traveling city. For the and, record, like, just to jump in here, like, so much of my life in, since Critical Role started, even before that, just at home, was just by myself in my room building this shit because the only people that cared about it were my players. Um, getting to collaborate with people, both in these books, and then actually, like, world build and, like, have you out of this is so awesome and so freeing. <laughs> to have somebody to bounce it off of it reminds me of when I used to co-GM with my friend Zach like 15 years ago to have somebody to bounce ideas off of and to like you know tie things together uh, and, and these conversations were exactly that I remember like taking Omar to the vet with Marisha and while she's taking care of business inside I'm out there for like an hour on the phone with you talking about just like the cosmology of Exandria and how the gods relate to mortality and their creations and the historical kind of truth behind a lot of the different gods and like I don't get to have those conversations with anybody, you know, like that, that, that's awesome. Ugh, um, but anyway, sorry not to cut you off there. Yeah, I need another 20. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks, man. Uh, yeah, please don't, please don't cut me off. Um, the, uh, 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 what was I saying? Um, essentially, it was a beautiful time to explore and tying it into the lore, Shattered teeth, Vespin Chloris, and and the, the divinities, right? Because those are the things that sort of like you couldn't perv on Sewell. Talk about a moment where oh. where you have to improvise where you're not expecting it. I was like, all right, we got the Pervon cameo, and he's dipping, and Sam and Luis being like, wait, and yeah. I was like, don't make me do more stuff with Pervon. <laughs> That's a part you can really fuck up. <laughs> I was like very careful about not giving them like surface. You know, like, yeah. part of, like, having Avalier be, again, a, an, yeah. a, a, a before unmentioned place is I was like, whatever you guys do here, it's like I've child-proofed the house. Like, sorry to, not, not that the players were themselves children, but, you know, foam surfaces. I'm a dumb baby. Yeah. Thanks. You want yeah. stuff part that they can break it. 100%. Yeah, you want to have that thing where it's like, okay, we're going to be in a corner of the setting that if you break it or don't, whatever, yeah. it's going to survive. I, rather than doing it in, like, when we first talked about, like, doing it in Aeor, I was like, mm. that... I was like, that's really intimidating in a very scary way because, like, we know that Aeor has to survive well into the calamity. Mm -hmm. There's a lot. There's a lot of things that need to get hit there. So yeah, that's what. So that's what it was like doing uh, Age of Arcanum stuff. It was a joy, incredible. No, I that. I mean, I'm not like a broken record here, but just it, I'm. I'm just cool. <laughs> you guys are cool. This has been fun. Um, I another cool facet too of 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 having you guys play in this world is everything you do. You know, you keep saying I don't want to worry. I don't want to you know mess anything up, and you haven't. You know, the only I thing I want to mess it up. I know. It's like I'm gonna ruin it. And you no, know, and you tried. I broke it. And you, you broke a lot of things. Thanks. But there was one thing you couldn't stop. Heartbreak. 
Uh, <laughs> and the calamity, I guess. Uh, it's in the, it's in the name. Uh, but so many facets of the player choices of the world building that you've both done are now canon. And that gives me more things to play off of in the future, too. And it's kind of like the cyclical thing where just, I don't know, we get to we get to fill in the gaps and push back the fog of war. And it is it is a world building, yes, and. Which is awesome. It isn't just like, I've been building this thing and you guys did your own side stories. Like, it's passing the baton back and forth. And that, nothing is more exciting than watching what you guys do or playing in what you guys are doing and being like, oh, that'll be fun to maybe pull into a later, you know, campaign or like, oh, this would be a fun thing to reference down the road or, oh, that actually ties this thing together that I hadn't had time to really flesh out. Uh, or, wow, that was, that's not at all what I was anticipating. It's much cooler than what I was thinking of. We're going to go with that now. You know, it's like, wow, I just love the whole process. Um, so thank you guys for, for taking the plunge. Uh, and to that point, uh, in using this at home, you don't have to worry about any of this pressure. You can do whatever the fuck you want. You want to stop the calamity? Go for it. Oh my God, do it's it. It's fine. Stop the calamity! Um. <laughs> don't let it happen. If you see a tree and it doesn't make sense, you should just leave it. <laughs> you, should just, you should just trust a tree is maybe the thing. <laughs> <sighs> Sun Tree's ancestor. Look what yeah. you did. <laughs> Look, I expected to blight it and just to be like, hey. <laughs> the hubris uh, of slightly disliking hippies. Um, <laughs> the, the My parents will remember that. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you and fuck your tree. Um, Every wizard is a yuppie. Of course they hate anyone that walks around barefoot. Like, sense. wizards wear their shoes to bed. <laughs> They're not cool. There's no. They're not chill people. I wear my shoes to bed. <laughs> yeah. Here's a fun question. Uh, of, of the, and, and before we answer this, totally fine too, but of the lore that you've established and brought into Exandria, what element of it is your favorite? What thing are you the most proud of and what you've created in this world? Ooh. Oh, that's a good question. Wow. Dang. You're gonna wanna speed this a uh, little bit up while we think in real time. Um. I know it seemed disrespectful in Kaimul, but to me, uh, I I just loved the idea that like, even a generation after one of the worst things that ever happened to Taldore uh, in the Chroma Conclave happened, like, to me, irreverency and a lack of like holding the past as sacred is a, it's like a hopeful thing yeah. and a sign of progress where we're like, we're no longer wounded by that so we can laugh at it. So making the like chroma spa cave <laughs> and really just the world's goofiest little casino to, uh. to me was that idea that like nature heals and sometimes it heals a little stupid, but it does heal <laughs> and moves forward. And, uh, and then when you mentioned the taste of Taldore in the main game, uh, my group chat of all of us while we were watching like blew up. We're like, did you see? I'm like, yeah, watch it. Oh, and, and, and I can't take all the credit for that. Uh, the Taste of Taldore was uh, Bashir Gauss's, one of his contributions to the Hellcatch Valley. So that's, that was Bashir's yes. little thread that he threw to me, and then I got the flesh out from within there. So that, that was another example of passing the baton back and forth Heck and yeah. co-world building that that's makes it. something really special. Yay. I love that. Exploring that was, was all the like external chaos and internal like deep sigh that I could have never <laughs> hoped for. Oh God, you're right. Now we ha now have Casa Bonita and Taldore, yeah. and I thank you for that. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's fucking great. <laughs> but but it, but it's true though. Like I, 
It's one of the things that, you know, for, for all of its, its, its bumps and, and warts, uh, I've always appreciated about South Park, um, is that it is willing to take sometimes like deep tragedy and as part of the process of processing it um, and healing from it to be able to find the humor in the darker elements of humanity and, and kind of showing its face. And uh, that, I think it's, that's, that's a really fun example of that. Uh, humor, yeah, I, I, I love that. I think, like you're saying. Well, did you do funny stuff? Because I just cried for four weeks straight. <laughs> cool. Damn! Cool. I'm still dehydrated about this whole. I'm sunburned show. from this side now. Ah! Like, <laughs> um, the fucking Two Face over here just <laughs> flipping my coin. Part, honestly, <laughs> when the bolo scene happened, part of me was like, get your laughs in now, motherfuckers. Um, <laughs> tone's not coming up from this. Um, uh, no, but, all, but honestly, yeah. like you're saying, I believe a reverence as healing is beautiful. Like, and I think that, that, that honestly, to that point, like humorlessness does not occur in nature. When I have been around death in my real life, there's almost always been a, a laughter, not at the expense of death. One of the ways I put it talking with Iz about it was like, death is not a punchline, but it is the perfect setup. It, death it renders bad. everything around it absurd. Yeah. So weirdly, I've always, in moments that I've been in and around, like either in funerals or dealing with the, 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 the post-mortem, like even just like logistics of like, Okay, a family member has passed away. I have a reservation for us at Buca di Beppo. <laughs> and you go, and you just go like, yeah, because we are hungry again and we will have to eat. And later today, some of us will poop. Some yeah. of us will poop on the day of death. <laughs> yeah. And you, and that, like everything is rendered hilarious yeah. by the presence of that there. So I feel like a reverence, uh, that's actually, I feel like it, both me and Iz have that like shared value of like, yeah, yeah like, the, it's why we loved everything, everywhere, all at once so much yes. because it's like profundity and absurdity are deeply in love. They go hand in hand, right? The world is very profoundly meaningful and deeply silly. Um, Daniel Sloss has a wonderful piece in one of his stand-ups where he talks about like using humor in the darkest of moments as a, a wonderful, necessary relief of stress and emotion and like some of his... He has a whole story about like like his closest friend waits for the perfect moment with the perfect joke at the most inappropriate emotional yes. beat, and I I can't help but feel that deep in my heart and and love that truth, wholly. Yeah, <laughs> a million percent. Um, to the to the Alexandria thing, I think I think what I uh, the there like in terms of a piece of lore, I really enjoyed just like. Uh, uh, you know, there there was a chonky bit of lore for Avalier. Lair, you were a champ, Abria, <laughs> in terms of being like mm. the STEM wizard. Like everyone got a lot of lore. You were like, here's 40 spell engines. And for everyone <laughs> that kept track of what the fuck those spell engines were, you're a champ and a pro and I appreciate you. Because uh, in that, like there, there was, I threw a lot of like jargon at people almost and I, th th I think that like the the jargon for me was part of the point of being like, if you're a little intimidated by the amount of crazy wizard shit going on, yeah, it was intimidating yeah. at the time. Mm -hmm. Like this was out of hand. <laughs> like this got a little goofy. Uh, uh, so having, and I think I texted you, Matt, one day, being, you were like, we were, we were scheduling a meeting and I was like, just sitting here coming up with fake wizards. And I was yeah. like, <laughs> 
This is, is was, my job today. This is my job. Yes. My job today is I've come up with 30 fake wizards. <laughs> Got all their names. There's so the many of them. Three fake wizards. Go. Madara Glyph. Oh, uh, uh, I feel bad about her. I, Let me just say, that was the meanest thing I did, and I went home, I was like, I feel bad about that. It's pretty harsh. Ooh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Madara. I'm Madara. so sorry. Madara. Ooh. Ooh. I was, that tree, but I'm, at, I'm sad about the girl. Yeah, Madara. Well, you know, uh, uh, the, I definitely was like, I was like, I'm either going to bring that back like later and have it be like, oh, she like quit or something fucked up happened. Uh, but then, you know, the apocalypse happened and other shit Scott took priority. Um, uh, but the... Um, yeah, I think that was, and I think too, just the idea of being able to bring Vespin Chloris in, bringing Vespin Chloris in terms of a piece of lore to really connect, because the world remembers Vespin as such a villain, and to really underline that his greatest sin was the greatest sin of his age, which was hubris. In other words, this guy was not a nihilist. He didn't want to, to he wasn't like, I wanted to release the betrayers and I succeeded. He, like every other fucking wizard, thought he could do some cool shit and was wrong. Yeah. And oh to to take Matt's world building of like the age of Arcanum, they they overreached. They went too far. And to be like, not only is that Vespin's crime, it's the crime of these people. And so you as an audience watching Calamity can infer, because this is all you're seeing, that this is true everywhere. Yes. And and so that in a weird way. So many, like, you know, one is an instance, two is a coincidence, three is a pattern. You see all the ring of brass and you go, oh, the whole, this is the, this is the world. This is the water that all these fish are swimming in. Uh, and so that, like, to, to use Vespin for that and say, and paint the whole age with that brush through him and the ring of brass was like my favorite part of that world building. I think, I think def definitely the establishing of Vespin, as far as the calamity goes, one of my favorite things that, you finally got to like to show and reveal within the lore as a character that's been kind of the spooky specter yeah. throughout the history, um, as well as uh, I mean, you know, es establishing the creation of the shattered teeth and the final reveal at the end. Just <sighs> such a great, a great moment uh, to put the spotlight back on you. One of the things that I thoroughly enjoyed uh, through EXU uh, was a, a very important city that had never been seen in, in person for the entire campaign. That was that was. Uh, Deeply tied into the backstory of two main Vox Machina characters, Vex and Vax, the town of Byroden that they grew up in, that had been spoken of and 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 written of uh, in 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 loose tales and meant to be kept fairly vague until we visited it, uh, and then we had the opportunity to, and you brought it to such vibrant life, <laughs> uh, in 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 so many wonderful ways that I wouldn't have expected and. And as another example, in ways that made it far better than I would have done myself. And once again, this is one of the things I love about collaboration: is being surprised uh, at how people continue to elevate things beyond what you can. Uh, you know, even as the the initial creator of it, um, and it, it completely like changed my perspective on that city. As something that was like, oh, it's a fun thing there that maybe we'll ever get to. To now, like, I really love Byroden, and I really <laughs> want like more stories to be told in it. And now people have a very clear idea of. of of not just it as a fantasy town, but also uh, elements that reflect uh, actual real world, world experiences and cultural yeah. touchstones, so that people who live in those sort of environments, in those in, in those parts of of the you know, south and 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 you know uh, beyond the the border there, like can look at it and be like, oh, I know exactly what that is, and I can build off that for my own home game. Hell 
and I love And that. shout out to Amy Carrero because we had that conversation about Laredo, Texas, and uh, I've yelled uh, many times on the internet about why I think the American South is like the most like magical part. Like it, there's something storied about it in this very interesting way, mm -hmm. and also having the fun of like making a place that felt homey and cozy in the way that like the descriptions and experiences of Singorn weren't in order to validate Vex and Vax's path mm -hmm. of the way they like romanticized their youth that we never saw versus like the sort of coldness and, and uh, of the like elven city that we did get to see. And it was just fun and pies are fun. Yeah. And I'll say to that point too, it's, it's that logic thread I think that makes world building good. You know, you can make up a bunch of towns and be like, these towns are unique in their own way. But when you get down to finding the logic as to why they are the way they are and what makes them similar and contrasting against the other nearby societies, the, those logic questions that you ask yourself is what ends up leading to really, really good world building because it feels alive. There seems to be reason to why things exist the way they are and where they're going. And you know, that's kind of my exercise whenever I'm trying to world build is, you know, have some fun ideas, throw them down, and then start the logic matrix of yes. how does this fit now against everything else around it? How does it affect the space that I've put it in? And if it doesn't work, do I move it elsewhere? What do I change to make it work? Does it bring up more questions about things I've already created? And then how can I you know, change the math on these things so they yes. all now work together uh. and make sense? And that's, that's part of the, the problem solving and kind of puzzle yeah. aspect of world building that's so fun. And so fun. Uh, you guys are freaking great at it and I love it. We learned it from you, Story Dad. <laughs> Learned it from you. <laughs> oh my god. Um, what's next on the thing? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I like. Do you want to ask this? Yeah, I'll ask. I got this. <laughs> we gotta stop squinting so hard. <laughs> We're just like, this is natural. You put on my glasses. Oh. I will put mine back on. I can't see for shit, y'all. Huh. Well oiled machine. <laughs> Matt! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, brother. Oh no. Oh, god. I'm blacking out. <laughs> Uh, Drink some water. <laughs> just more coffee. Never had water a day in my life. Yes! <laughs> what were some of the uh, capitors are for? Matt, what were some of your inspirations for Exandria? <laughs> that was almost a spit take, so I'm do, done. This is actually great. This is what you, yeah. Because because like great uh, like Exandria itself, Exandria was born in a misty past that none of us have access to. Yeah. yeah. Which is pretty fucking cool. That's a little bit of the Matryoshka doll of the Genesis. <laughs> like we come into campaign one partway through. Yeah. So the idea of like its Genesis really starting as other, like how, yeah, what were, what were its inspirations? And like, I also do kind of want the like real world info Okay. Not, yeah. not only like like your your kind of like lore building stuff, but also like when where were you in your life when you were like Ooh, building? Oh yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Who were you when you built this? Right. Oh, uh, younger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm done with drinking. That's a little spit take. We're done here. Uh, okay, well, so Exandria started as a reaction to wanting to run a game for a bunch of my voice actor friends who some of them hadn't played in a long time and some of them had never played. And so it wasn't meant to be a world, it was meant to be a city. I just built Stillben. Yeah. It was a swamp town for a one-shot, and I got nothing more beyond like some basic facets of the town, a couple of inn names, a couple of road names, a couple of factions, and a general like through line, a one-shot we could play in like six hours at home on a weekend. Amazing. And that was it. And that was, it wasn't even in Exandria. There was no name for the world, it was just a town. And then we finished the one-shot, and then the email came in, hey, that was great, when's the next one? Oh, so now we're going to, so it's becoming a campaign, and they were hooked, and I was like, yes. 
And so then the next you know, game turned into Western. And then I built the area around Western. And then after that second, third session, I was like, oh, this is becoming an actual campaign. I guess I gotta start building this. And so from there, I began to like going into Photoshop and started like just, you know, scanning hand sketches of the outside of Tal'Dorei. Oh, and cool. and I just, and it wasn't even Xandri then, it was just Tal'Dorei. And I, I still have like my old files that I, I'm like really poorly done on, on, on Photoshop. But, uh, but yeah, so it was just a slow building thing. Uh, and then eventually, they had explored enough of it and began to ask and invest in enough of the world's history and the lore that I had to write it. <laughs> and so I began to expand upon that in my head, and then I came up with the name of the world, which was Exandria. And uh, uh, they asked about other continents, and I said, sure, Asilra, and I will never get to it. And then eventually when we do, I'll flesh it out. And you know, like, it just kind of organically happened as we played. It was laying the tracks down in front of the train as yeah. the players are exploring it. And then, and then I, the more I did that, the more I fell in love with it. And then I just wanted to see more of it realized and wanted to kind of flesh it out. And then it became the logic thing. It began from what was just like throwing things together. What are the things that bother me about fantasy world building? As a person that grew up reading novels and watching fantasy films and TV, like a lot of high fantasy is, is, is wonderfully designed in its flair and its color and its magic and its you know, robust sense of wonder. Uh, and then it breaks down if you look past the curtain, you mm, know, mm-hmm. like, like you were saying earlier with, with Middle Earth. Like at a certain point, you're like, yes, well, it's a magical time where things of wonder occurred. Now there are dwarves. And you're like, <laughs> right, but like. So you're 3,000 years old, but your generations are each like 150. How do you know that if you go on a date with someone, it's not your descendant? Do you guys keep a record of this somewhere? (laughs) I would. You have to have little bracelets or something. That that awkwardness still happens, I'm sure, in uh, the Kryn Dynasty. Love that. Yeah. Dynasty matchmaking, buku bucks, baby. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, Guarantee that, you're not there's, related. There's, uh. there's an interesting book I remember reading many years ago that a friend recommended to me called, uh, I think it was Many Lives, Many Masters, which is an interesting story, I say. It's supposedly like based on a true story, but eh, about like, you know, uh, past life regressions and people like mm. discovering that they had reoccurring souls that would show up in different past lives. And in this life, they were. You know, uh, partners in this life, they were neighbors, in this life, they were a father son, but they were like continuing cycle of, of spirits. And it was, uh, it's a very interesting story, uh, if, whether or not you believe that or not. Uh, I, I don't necessarily, but it was, it was interesting to read. Uh, but that, that was an element of that inspiration in the creation of the Korean dynasty. And as I began to develop it, I was like, that would, that's gotta be an interesting scenario to all of a sudden be born, come in to realize your previous, you know, memories and be like, huh, you there, my, my eldest teacher. I was your father 300 yeah. years ago. You know, this is odd. <laughs> Let's go have a sandwich and have some therapy. Like, you know, it's, 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 it's a weird scenario. But, uh, but yeah, so like then, then I guess to, to what you were saying earlier, the world building of logic began to be, okay, this is a game of Dungeons and Dragons. There are ancient relics. There are uh, ruins that contain mystery and power. Why do they exist? There has to be something that buried them. There has to be a reason, not only that people could build great things, but then lose them. And that's where the idea of, of like the calamity came into to bay. And also the divergence was one of the things that, that bothers me in a lot of fantasy settings where there are, there are powerful deities, all powerful entities that, that guide the threads of fate. 
um, and walk amongst the planes. But then all of a sudden, if there's a great danger, it's up to a couple of low-life heroes yeah. in the tavern to beat it. And the gods are like, fix it for me. You know, like I, <laughs> the, the logic kind of broke for me there. So I wanted to come up with a reason that the gods were removed from the world so that the players still felt they had agency and couldn't rely on the gods to fix all their problems. And if they did, I wouldn't have to be like, uh, the god just says, nah. You know, and, and so. Dawnfather, known for being like, mm, we'll put a pin in it. <laughs> You're not entirely wrong. Uh, but yeah, so, so a lot of it was just kind of, kind of lodging out those, logicing out those facets of, of, of history that bothered me in other fantasy settings and wanting to try and like lay out some ground rules early in that would help me down the road if we ever crossed those paths. So yeah, um, I could go on a whole tangent of, uh, from there. But that I think those are some, some loose answers to that yeah. question. Oh, so. God, yeah. the idea of being in like Westron and be, and having a feeling of like I think we're in the oldest part of our world, not actually. Like the idea of like a world that grew organically from something small and then like over time, you know, like right? uh, God, that's so beautiful. It's very weird. I'll have, to, I'll have to see if I I know I have the files somewhere. I'll have to look at my old old maps where it's just like the dividing plains. I don't think they called the dividing plains yet. It was just like there's a town and there's Gat Shadow of the Mountain and there's just grass <laughs> and there's like a little mountain here. And there's still been, and that's your map. Yay! The idea of like, like, is there part of you that like, like wants to? Uh, I don't know. Like, I, like to me, if I were in Alexandria, I'd be like, I want to go to Stillben, <laughs> just to be like, <laughs> oh, yeah. some part of me, I'm drawn to that town. Um, <laughs> it's so cool. Funky little fishing town. Funky little fishing town. Love like it. Little swamp town. Um, there has to be someone in Stillben now that like has a small trade where they sell relics of the legendary Vox Machina that are totally just fake and yes. given shitty titles on them. Beautiful. Okay. I have a question. Yes. Do you remember the moment where Exandria felt like, not complete, but like whole to you? Instead of just like the, at what point were you like, I've laid enough track and now it's connected and the train can go on its own a little bit without me like, Never. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. It's it's always a, Yay! Oh, oh, okay, what next do I have to do? Oh, God. <laughs> um, which is, you know, that, that's a special stress when it comes to actual play. Yeah. You know, when you're at home, the only people you have to impress are the people at your table. Yeah. Uh, and what we do, the stakes are a little larger. You know, when people are assembling wikis and you know oh, yeah. pages that are lay, you know listing out all the contradictions within the things <laughs> you've established in your lore, and you're like, fuck, fuck, I, I forgot that. I, that's not what I meant. I misspoke on. Okay, well I'll figure it up later. You know, I, the, what did I just say? Panic. I've only ever <laughs> felt in actual play. I'm like, Yo. yes. Oh no! I have to say it again. Oh, what did I call that? I'm still getting over it, Abri. You, you still like you asked Matt like when did the world feel done? And Matt Stone Cold went, it doesn't. With this <laughs> right here, so folks, get it at your local gaming store. Tell Dory Reborn <laughs> if that's not done. And this is a continent, folks. Yeah, yeah. That's one continent. Yeah. They got Wild Mount too. Yeah. <laughs> this is not done. I'm just gonna go home. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Take it, yeah. man. What the fuck? <laughs> not done? <laughs> I got three months between seasons, okay? <laughs> Welcome to uh, Biggityburg. Here we go. It's a new town. This is the new season. You whackity schmackity do 10 episodes. Help me. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the only thing my brain's gonna remember from all of that is Biggity Berg. Welcome to Biggity oh, Berg. 
I'm different. <laughs> no, but I, yeah. I think it's all the ruins of Avalir and the yeah. Shattered Teeth. Yeah. Biggity Bird. Yeah. Biggity Bird, deep in there. Welcome to Biggity Bird. Go Bird. home, play that in your world, that, yeah. and tag Brandon on Twitter <laughs> when you do Let it. Let me know how it goes in Biggity Bird. Um, but, but tr- hashtag Biggity Bird. Um, truly, but, it, but with that, though, I think that is a testament, Matt, though, to like your, your, um, you know, every every GM is different, and everyone like. But your your like the I, I know what you mean of, of like rendering this stuff in detail. There's always more to be done. There's always more world building to be done. But I do think that like your knowledge of this world is so deeply inspiring, really? and the idea too of a world that like because I think you want that feeling, right? For me, that feeling of you sit at a table and you look up at a GM. And that GM goes like, oh, I literally know about this world. I, I, I would pass out from exhaustion before I was finished explaining to you everything I know about this world. And you want that feeling as a player to be like, it's real. <laughs> You know, I think yeah. that's such an interesting thing yeah. where players always do that to, like, they always say that, they, they, did you know, did you prep that? Was that written down before? And it's it's like, but you feel that as a player when you sit down, and I think, like, the beautiful thing about Alexandria, and again, even, you, like, of course your answer was gonna be, like, it's not done yeah. yet. Because world building is a hallmark of great storytellers. Yeah. Or lazy ones. <laughs> you know what? You can be both. I, I, it can be very much. <laughs> You're incredible, and you got to roll around in the compliment. Okay. You got to roll around in okay. the compliment. I'm getting trying to be better at that. Thank you. Yay. Um, <laughs> but, but but also like you know, not not done in the sense that like what I set out to do with this, and like especially with with the books, is to to not be like here Taldore, it's done. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's like here Taldore, this is what me and Hannah and and Joey or James Haig have put together, uh, and there are many spaces in here for you to continue to build off of. Yeah. It's it's. It's a it's a thorough scaffolding for you to also take the inspiration to build off uh, in however way you want to. Like nothing makes me happier than meeting uh, critters in the wild uh, conventions pre-COVID and also like you know in the street and occasion here and there, and them telling me about their home games yes. and how and some people are, are scared to mention it, others are more excited to tell me the things they've changed. And I'm like, yes, please. Tell me how you've broken my world and made it your own, because yes. that was what I want to hear. I want I want you to feel like you own now this 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 setting in your own way, and so, and that also is kind of what I mean when I say like it's unfinished. Meaning, I I hope that in passing it off, it continues to grow with everyone else. Yeah, that's beautiful. Oh, man, so why do you guys make your uh, your villain so hot? That's my question. It's not on the prompter. Why do make why do make villains so hot? First yeah. of all, I was following Best in your good. footsteps because Abria established that every Exandria GM gets a betrayer god yeah. as a goodie bag on the Yeah, that out. is fun. That is fun. <laughs> that is fun for us. I saw you with the Spider Queen and I was like, I'm doing that shit. <laughs> there was nothing more gratifying than watching you have that like big spoilers, uh, like turn moment because I was like, I could have never done that. Amy. Amy would not have let me be bad. She's like, no, girl. I'm like, fact, I got girl boss. The fact that that Amy and and once again, this is a testament to to why I love playing with newer players. Yes. Uh, oh, there, when the, they there's, don't know what they can do. There's there's a cycle I'm I've, I'm noticing uh, through the through the years of playing, of of like a player cycle. When you first begin, you don't know the boundaries that a lot of experienced players expect or understand. The more you know the game, the more you tend to. Uh, more often than not, stay within the confines of what the game establishes as the rules. But when you're new to it, 
you don't really understand that, so you take wider swings, you make stranger choices, you really kind of like push against those boundaries because you don't know where the boundaries are. You're like a, a kid who's learning how to walk for the first time and bumping into the furniture, and it's wonderful. And then eventually you kind of fall into those lines, and not always, but sometimes you find yourself kind of subconsciously sticking, you know, coloring within the lines because you've learned to do so. Then over time, you begin to realize you've been doing that, and then you go back to being weird again. Yeah. And that's my that's my other favorite point. It's new players or extremely experienced yes. players that have come back to reclaim their stupid youth uh, as, <laughs> yeah. as players. And Amy was a perfect example of, of, of a player who just didn't give a shit and wanted wanted to just just follow the thread and 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 push in the best way. And the two of you playing off of each other, I, oh my god, I'm sitting, I'm, I'm, I was at the table just kind of going, what is happening? <laughs> This is amazing. But, That's so good. <laughs> but like, I think Abria, like your proficiency and excellency in like reading that, because that's the thing, right? Is like, a, like, it's so funny. The term like master, game master, or dungeon master, it creates this hierarchy, but it's an inverted hierarchy because yeah. what it is is you are in the position of service yeah. as a GM. It's like. You are singular, even though all these people share one role and you have a singular role, I've always compared it to like the person who's making dinner in a small kitchen. Because yes. the kitchen can't fit that many people, you're making dinner for everybody. And to, I feel like you're saying like, to read your players and go like, I'm gonna serve you in this moment and give you exactly what you're asking for. Like that is what you are, you're a genie. You're like, I'm going to grant your wish. What did you, what's the experience you came here to get? Let me give it to you. And I feel like that was an unparalleled example of like reading what a player wanted in that moment and being like, cool, you get your wish. Like, ah, it was great. Yay. It was so great. To answer your question, uh, that is the audience's eye and the internet is thirsty. I don't, yeah, we are. don't try to make villains hot. I make villains villains and then the internet goes, they're hot. And I'm like, I don't, how? That's a hot boy. Okay, no, well that, well that. That's a hot boy. Well, okay, no, Lu Lucian is hot because. I walked into this room and was like, oh, well, no. hey baby. Well, well, look, look. Smash! Well, it's, Lucian is hot because the character that eventually became Lucian was established as hot by the creator of that character, and then thus I had to represent them as also being equally Your hot. Your hands were tied, you had to be. <laughs> right. Your hands were tied. Yeah. And why was he mostly naked? Because I wanted him to be. Yeah, there we go. Well, because, because it is, in, in, <laughs> you know, it, it is very much that kind of like angelic, biblical, oh, yeah. you know, kind of uh, visual that, that that classic uh, painting I wanted to reference, and I wanted, I wanted to see his muscles. <laughs> it's good <laughs> to see muscles, right? Well, it's good. While yeah, we're talking about like good. building and having physical stuff, uh, let's talk about uh, my favorite like new skill that I got to learn for EXU, which was physical maps, because I'm a theater of the mind kid mm -hmm. until this. So uh, talk to me, y'all, people who have done this way more about the process of like building maps for encounters uh, for your games. Ah. Uh... To, to start, I'll say I've, I've played both Theater of Mind and Map, and I love them both for different reasons. Yeah. I think for smaller groups, I prefer Theater of Mind, unless everyone really, really enjoys having you know miniatures and maps, but Theater of Mind can, can tell a quicker story in combat, can feel more cinematic if you're not having to focus down on something that's on the table. But with larger groups, like you know five, six, or more players, yeah. you, Theater of Mind can become challenging for people to understand spatial awareness, and that's where the, the minis really come into to play for me. Yeah. Um, but uh, when it comes to maps, I'm also a huge fan of, of, of miniatures. I've been collecting them for a long time. Uh, I love 
I call them my adult Legos because it, it it really is just like sitting down and, and bringing something to, to physical life and being creative. Um, yeah, how about you? I'm gonna give Rick Perry a call. See him. <laughs> Well, I will just say, I remember when you told me about the beauty of Blue Tack, and I was like, oh my God. That, so that changed. Oh, Blue Tack. Well, that's a Rick Perry oh, original. So, so on Dimension 20, we have Rick Perry, who's our production designer, who is a brilliant man. And his whole yeah. shop, Katie McGeorge, his whole shop of people are awesome that come on and produce our miniatures, uh, which is. Even even if I uh, were a minis collector, so many of our Dimension 20s seasons are set in Candyland Game of Thrones yeah. or yeah. High School for Heroes, right? So we do a lot of pop culture mashup things and a lot of genre mashup things, uh, which means that all of a sudden needs to get built from scratch. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and Rick does an incredible job of doing that. Um, uh, but it also means that like the, the maps we play with over there get played, get featured in the episode where they appear and then we wish them uh. a fond farewell and off they go. Um, but I'm a bit, when I'm playing in home games, I have the dry erase, I have the minis, I have the tokens, I have stuff. I really recommend Othello pieces if you have a home game. Oh. Because you can flip them over to the white side and then dry erase on them for hit points and you can track the hit point right. Huh. Damn, I never right. thought of that. Write that shit down. Yeah. That's good. This that's is good. That's, that's a life hack right there. It's a life this. hack. Holy you just shit. have how much, and you, and you can, and if you don't want to give away how many hit points they have, and also subtraction's harder than addition, you just literate how much damage they've taken, and you keep in mind their HP Ooh, total. That's good. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, I I do prefer maps because I think that there is a lot of fun for tactical, and I also yeah. play with larger. I think your point about larger groups is exactly right, yeah. um, and especially there are. I think if you are a big theater of the mind head. Put a little bit of th either check in that your group really doesn't care about balance or really doesn't care like that those mechanical things are not of the utmost importance mm. because there are some classes that will get short shrifted yes. by a lack of a map more than others. Very true. Rogues really screwed by a lack of a map. Those bonus action, you know, cunning action, yeah. really helps to have a tactical layout. Area of effect, forget it. Like if you don't have a map, you know. The amount of times Emily Axford has raked me over the coals, ah. shout out to Emily Axford, <laughs> like the amount of times she's raked me over the coals by being like, hey man, <laughs> you lined up all these little dudes. <laughs> There's 12 in a line, the maximum amount I can hit with a lightning bolt. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. They're definitely in that line. Um, but there's no arguing. Conversely, yeah. it's also fun when the players all are doing their rounds and it comes to the enemy's turn and they realize that they've all gotten in a line. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that does feel good. They, delicious. That's very, very that's delicious nice. too. Uh, and also, again, if you have battle, if you put a lot of love into your battle maps, um, uh, grist for creativity can occur anywhere. So one of the fun things too, like Rekha Shankar in like Bloodkeep, the when yep. like where she sees a bunch of chains that Rick Perry's put all over the battlefield, and she's like, "Can I grab one of these elves with a chain and make him into a reverse gravity chained up balloon man?" <laughs> and you're like, "I can't argue with the board. You absolutely can. Yeah. We're measuring out the distance. That's all incredibly yeah. doable." Yeah, uh, and, and to that point, like you don't need. Uh, masses of amounts of you know dwarven forge terrain or anything to, to build out a map, you know to your point having just uh, paper on and and pen on the board to draw out the areas. I for years did it all on large graph paper, 
you know, that I would get like like easel sized paper with one inch by one inch grids on it, nice. and would draw the maps on there, and would use dice as position modifiers. And even without that, if someone asks in theater of mind, like, you know, how far away from me, I can go ahead and put some dice or some pennies down and just show like a general distance, yeah. just so there is spatial awareness, but without having to do all the effort of having to feel like you have to show up with an entire, you know, fully built immersive map there. But if you want to do that too, that's also a lot of fun. Um, cool. I. I love the process of like having an idea for a map, which to me is like, okay, uh, what enemies are on there? What kind of terrain would would this require? What sort of fun challenges can I put in front of the players to make the tactics beyond just you know a, yeah. a slog fest? What things can the enemies use against them in the environment, and what things can the players use against the enemies in the environment? Yeah. And then, if I can, throw a couple of random things down and see what the players do with it that I wasn't expecting. Like the chains is a perfect example. Like. You just sometimes throw shit down, kind of like Yahtzee it out in front of you and be like, oh, we'll see if anyone comes up with something yeah. creative. I love when the players like surprise you. They're like, does this make sense? And you're like, yes, and that's why I put that there for you. Oh my God. We had, we had in campaign three, there was uh, the Shade Mother fight where uh, it was in this, this deep mine that had been abandoned and there was this, this terrifying uh, kind of alien queen-esque-like creature that was down there. Uh, that was kind of building out a hive slowly. Cute. And they go in to fight it, and in the abandoned mine spaces, there was this giant machine that I had like just sitting at the base of this large rock tower, and it was just part of the cool you know, space there. And then Liam is Orem is like, I'm gonna go ahead and fuck with the controls of this. I'm like, okay, let's go ahead and make some rolls. You, you, you figure out what you think is probably, you know, where the ignition is on this, this partially messed up giant auger-like machine. Uh, rolls well on it, he goes and engages it forward and it burrows into it, and I'm like, sure, now it topples the entire thing, which pins one of your players, but also like changes the dynamic of the battle, ends up crushing a few other enemies. Never anticipated that, but it made for a very cool thing, which then allowed them, if I recall, he then took his uh, rope of, of, I can't remember what it's called, like rope of binding or whatever it is, like the rope that, that wraps around things, wraps it around the, the Shade Mother, and then throws the under, other end of the rope into the engine of this mining machine, so which then dope. tethers her into it, and she's like being dragged into the machine and can't escape and chase them. And like, you don't plan for that shit. It was just things that were on there that the players got creative with, and you roll with it, and those end up being some of the most memorable moments of battle when you finish it with your players. I love it. Yeah. I think it literally just occurred to me in the moment of you saying that, which is that I, like because I don't generally run theater of the mind combat, but in hearing you talk about it, I think what it is is that like weirdly, even though theater of the mind expedites things, one of the things you should be aware of when you're doing theater of the mind that I'm now realizing has happened when I've been a player in theater of the mind stuff is sometimes that that expediency can come to the detriment of texture, where you go, yeah. where you know, like having them like that idea of like, oh right, like those inspirations of like, what's that machine? What's that thing? What's that thing? If I'm doing theater of the mind and I narrate quickly and I'm like, okay, you're in some you know cave and, and a fight breaks out. It actually raises the likelihood of an encounter that's just hit point sinks subtracting from each other. Mm. So the idea of like, if you're doing theater of the mind to remember, don't just breeze past environment. Don't breeze past weather. Yeah. Don't breeze past mood. Mm-hmm. I'll, like, add, I'll add on to that as well. Uh, one of the things I like about theater of mind that can counter that is reminding your players that they can ask questions about what's in the environment. Yes. You know, the, the downside of also having a, a battle map sometimes is the players sometimes can just assume that they can only utilize what's visible. I see, yeah. They're like, oh, if you just build a, a room that's like a, you know, a, a square dungeon room with a throne, you're like, cool, this is an empty room with a throne. 
and they won't ask what's in there, they just assume it's an empty room with a throne. If it's more of a theater of mind game or experienced players who are playing a miniature game and know, they can be like, is, is there, you know, are there lanterns hanging on the wall that are burning oil? Like, yes, there are, there are three of them. You maybe not have considered that before, but you can answer the question of the players. Like, cool, I'm gonna grab one of the oil lanterns and smash it against the throne to burn it. You know, that, yeah. that, that just comes with the prompting of questions and you just, it helps to remind your players that they can ask questions about the environment. You know, you don't, you may not have planned for that cool chandelier that they want to hang from to swing past like a pirate <laughs> and slash the enemy across yeah. the back of his, you know, his, his armor. But, you know, unless the players ask that question, that moment won't happen. And sometimes the players just kind of get used to the same things you do and you don't think about raising those questions. So just another, another cool little thing to consider as you're going into battle to remind people to ask questions about what's around them. Again, communication is key. Yeah. <laughs> Add to that, uh, to that same point of, of, of kind of improvising, uh, how much preparation goes into a session for you guys comparatively? Like, I know for actual play, when you're being watched by a lot of people, there's a little bit more pressure to have your shit in line compared to like a home game where you can kind of wing it a little better. But I'm just curious, like for, for an average session, how much do you prepare? Ooh. Uh, I think generally speaking, it is borne out that uh, my amount of prep time will be equivalent to the runtime of the game. Uh, but it's not always like, okay, I know this is gonna be like a four hour session, it's gonna take me four hours. Sometimes it's just studying and reminding myself of the things. Like I do like, once I have my outline, kind of try to like learn it and commit it to heart so I can feel comfortable improvising on it when you start to play and, and once the cameras are rolling. But uh, yeah, I, I, it feels bad because I do also do the like GM just sitting on my couch uh, pretending to watch Moulin Rouge, but I'm just thinking about <laughs> D&D. Mm-hmm. Just oh, looking yeah. off into the middle distance, and yep. just occasionally I see my darling husband being like, "You think about swords again?" Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, Iz does that. Iz will yeah. be out of the peripheral vision and then like bend over to like wave. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I think one time I came out and I was just standing in like the half dark kitchen with like a thing of half and half. And <laughs> Yes. That is terrifying. Yeah. Oh, it's freaky. And I found someone who will forgive me it. So yay, yay. hooray, we did it. Um, That's the dream. uh, But truly, that that vibe of just like, I also can't always stop it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Where I'm just like, all right, time to go into the office to work. And then it's like, well, half of the living room, I'm gonna stop walking and just stare because we gotta be, because <laughs> yep. maybe gnomes work different than anyone's ever thought before. <laughs> that moment. I'm gonna have a new thought right now. <laughs> uh, the, the, amount of, the amount of times that I'll like be thinking of an NPC in, in the upcoming part of the campaign and start like in my head imagining how their physicality would be and as such how they might, they might sound and I'll start like, like improvising dialogue and finding their voice and then suddenly Marisha's like, you talking to yourself? <laughs> I'll just be off in the hallway, be like, like, of course, follow me down this path. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I was just gonna, I was gonna put my shoes on, and I had an idea. You heard nothing. <laughs> if you're a dungeon master yeah. and you need some voices time, just don't do it in the bathroom because other people in the apartment sometimes need to get in there, and if you're in there doing voices time then they might remind you that that's not the right place for that. And they might be um, brusque uh, about 
boy. how the bathroom's not the right place for that, even though it's very quiet and kind of meditative in there. And it's good. It's a great acoustic. Yo, mine's bathtub. I get in the bathtub and I get weird in there. Yeah. This is the real shit. We're finally saying it. All right. It's a lush bath bomb and me just being deeply weird for an hour and a half in the tub. I love it. Okay. I love it. For me, it was driving was my time, and then the pandemic hit, and then when I realized in the pandemic how much driving was like my time to think and prepare and practice, and then not having that, I had this like weird like where where do I put it? Where do I put this energy? Where do I find this time? And it and at first it was in the backyard, but then like some of the neighbors would wonder what was going on, and then it was like (laughs) taking a walk, and then I realized I looked like the person in the neighborhood that everyone like got on the other side of the street to go (laughs) around, and I, I. Eventually, I just, just told Marisha, like, I'm gonna be on the other side of the house. Like, like <laughs> just leave me alone for like 30 minutes and don't yeah. judge me. And she's like, it's fine. Just straight up in a mirror with like dental floss between two fingers being like, so you really thought that you could have withstand the full force of my, and, it, and, I, and I have like, in my phone, I have yeah. I have dozens of like voice memos of like, once I find the voice yeah. in NPC, I'll record like a couple lines of it so I can refer to it back later. I'll make a little note on it. It's super dumb. I'm so glad. Shout out to GM spouses. Y'all are some real ones. Seriously. (laughs) Thank you. And I get this question a lot. Sometimes people are like, how do you keep, how do you keep from telling your your spouse or your partner, like all the secrets of your thing or keep it secret from them? Obsessively, like a red <laughs> dragon in its horde. The minute she comes in my office, every tab is closed. Yes. Like my my chair turns. What can I do for you? Uh, what you need? Everything cool? Everything cool? I was looking at porn. I was looking at porn. Yeah. Actually, yeah. is what. Don't I was look doing. at that. Like, yeah. it's, it's straight up. It's straight up. Yep. Yep. Oh yep. my God. It's good. So we need like a little GMGC, just a little group chat to be like, we gotta yep. be weird at each other and leave these yep. good people alone. <laughs> I had a I had a bookmark on the knob. You I, know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> Truly, there is. I and I'll be real. There is no like like teenage like coming of age weird like I'm in the bathroom figuring my body out. <laughs> that is as embarrassing as being a full grown adult and having a partner being like, you doing voices in there? Yep. Like so much more embarrassing than uh-huh. any. Any adolescent anything. Like, Recommendation, get a dog. You can make weird mouth sounds at the dog, and then it just sounds like you're having, like you're doing just, just like a cute quirk, because everyone talks weird at the dog, and they don't think it's you being like, maybe this is what my elf sounds like now. No, no, mm, no I can't tell that story. Uh, <laughs> Turn the cameras off. <laughs> That's how we are To the same point of, of, of the awkwardness of, of, of voice time, make sure that like you're, you don't fall into voice time when doing other things, <laughs> like physical upkeep. Because mm, uh, yeah. then when your partner walks in and is like, what, are, yeah. what is happening here, uh, can be worrying. Well, you don't try to do the voices when you're in bed? Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. You gotta bang it out as an NPC every now and then. What? <laughs> what? What? Only me? You're gonna leave me Next out here? Question. Next question. By myself? Next. So, how would you say your GM styles differ? Obviously, not that much. We all do bathroom voices time. Is this getting released? No, right? This is just for us, right? This is just oh, for us. Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love you guys. I love you so, so much. Well, well, here, here to take the heat off of that one a little bit. Uh, so, uh, Abria, yeah, Brennan, <laughs> uh, you uh, for EXU uh, and an extension of that, a lot of the other games that you've run on, on your own channels and other channels. Uh, 
how do you make sure that a self-contained story doesn't go too far off the rails? Uh, I guess to the point where it doesn't feel like one, it's railroaded to what you were saying earlier, but also ensuring that within a very set period of time you have to tell that story, you can still bring it home to that uh, really successful and fulfilling conclusion. You start. I'm still thinking about dumb stuff from before. For sure, yeah. So we'll come back to that. <laughs> we'll come back. We'll come back. Yeah, probably. We'll be coming back to that for a while. I just can't believe I found bathroom buddies. Um, uh, <laughs> you remember the bathroom buddy time? Oh, Three of us just get together and make voices. Yeah! We all get one of those, like a big Vegas hotel room with a huge bathroom, so we can all stalk around yes! doing our, our various villains. Oh. Um, what do you say? So you do, like a Japan trip and get like some onsen somewhere and yeah! just really freak out the people that are taking care of it. That'd be amazing. Perfect. Hi, is this the concierge? Um, and an adjacent. Since Sweet appears to have three ancient deities of evil. <laughs> uh, okay, how do you yes. keep your story from going off the rails? Um, uh, first of all, again, like in a home game, you should never have as many rails as an actual yeah. game has. Like, like, and especially like D twenty is structured. Like, Rick Perry has to pre-create all the sets. And there's a, a given number of them that have to be created ahead of time, which means that something like a plot has to go around the tent poles of those sets, which means that like character creation has to happen eight weeks or more like in advance of when we're gonna film episode one because that's the amount of lead time that Rick needs, da 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 da. And I don't wanna make battle sets until I know who the PCs are because I wanna tie their backstory into, so like, I don't recommend that you run your home game like Dimension 20. It's a lot. And and also, the fact that cameras roll with us going, you have four or six or 10 or 20 episodes to get this done. Yeah. And the plane's gotta land, right? Um, is very, it's just frankly very stressful. Um, but, so that's why I think, st like I have, a, I'll always have a very different vantage point. Like we were saying before, I, all the sauce that I can on session zeros and character conversations, yeah. multiple check-ins. Let me understand where you're going. Cause baby, when the cameras are rolling, I'm already fucked at that point. Like <laughs> just straight up, like the oven. Like we're yeah, like we're in the oven now. Hope you've remembered the flour. Cause we're in the oven now. This is what the cake's gonna be. Yeah. Um so with all of that, I would say um to put this in the context of a home game so that this is actually useful. Um, I would say, what the hell are rails, right? And essentially, what people in a home game refer to as rails is they mean like, what's my role as the storyteller here? Because I know that all of us are great storytellers, but I also know how much the three of us know that we're really not the storyteller, that you are that Greek chorus. Yeah. Like, if you're not any of the protagonists, to what degree are you the fucking storyteller at all, right? Yeah. And I have an analogy that's been bopping around in my head for a little bit that I think does explain rails, at least as I like to think of them. And I will do this in less than five minutes. I'm so sorry. Run the clock. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> what I'm looking for when I'm a player is full immersion. I don't want the experience of being a storyteller when I'm a PC. Yeah. And that's a little bit of a different thing. Like a lot of indie games want a flat hierarchy on the table where everybody's typecast as a storyteller. I don't want that when I'm a player. Mm -hmm. When I'm a player, I want to be living in a story, immersed into a character that is not, to their knowledge, living in a story. Like Evan Kelp says in Misfits yeah. and Magic, I'm not a character, Yeah. right? 
I don't want to play a character that's thinking about their fucking narrative arc. I want to play a character that wants to save the world as quickly and efficiently as possible, right? <laughs> yeah. But I, the player, want the arc. So me and my character exist at odds because mm. I want the deep immersion. I want the fucking Mount Doom, Frodo's quest, all that shit. But the, I want to play a character that doesn't want that. I want to play a character that gets the ring as quickly and safely as possible to Mount Doom because that's the immersion I'm looking for. So what does that mean to if I want to provide that experience to a player? Players are like water. They are going down the hill as fast as they can, seeking the path of least resistance. That's that the character is like water. But the player wants anything other than a straight line. So my job as rails is irrigating a path down that that lets the water always have taken the fastest route towards its goal, but at the end of it, the shape is the most convoluted and pleasing, mm -hmm. right? That like you achieved the shape of a story while you were trying your hardest to go in a straight line. That makes sense. I love that. Yeah, yeah, that's Shoot. really cool. That's really good. Uh, uh, so nice. that so I'm different now. <laughs> <laughs> you should do this for a living. Yeah. Oh man. Um, uh, <laughs> but that so that that to me that's what rails are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the rail like my job when I'm telling a story is not to have a story in mind for you to go on, I really think about myself as improvising in reaction to the players with a bag full of lots and lots of storytelling tropes, mm -hmm. right? That is literally like, I'm in reaction to you, you're driving, but I have I have a double helix, I have a weird S, I have this roundabout and this clover leaf. I have these shapes that I'm gonna throw in front of you because I know you're trying to go straight, but I know you'll be sad if you do. Yeah. So that's what a DM's rails are to me. It's reactions to that desire of the PCs, knowing that the player wants one thing and the character wants another, and they'll be most pleased if they both get their way, which you can do with cleverly improvised rails. Nice. Yeah. And, and to that point, like part of the preparation, uh, to kind of what you were saying earlier, is getting to know enough about the world and the kind of story that you're hoping to tell and you're hoping the players will enjoy so that when you do start, you can kind of let all that preparation go and just ride with the player, you know, actions and agency and have that bag at the ready. And at that point, like a lot of your preparation should be modular. Yeah. You know, you should know which things are important to tell the story, what bits of information you feel would be the most impactful for the players to discover, yeah. to uncover, to take to heart and use to drive them towards a goal to, to fulfill that Heroic fantasy, or that that you know horror narrative, whatever it is you're, you're you know you're using to t to tell, you want to make sure that anything that's important to that story can be shifted. You know, if if in order for them to to discover the the really important information about the mystery of the murders, they have to go to the police station to talk to this one guy, but they never go to the police station. What do you do? Yeah. So you have to think of like this information might be held by a number of people and whoever they encounter down the way, they might have the opportunity to gather it there. And at that same point, I would also caution against locking necessary information behind die rolls. Yeah. You know, you never want the opportunity of, of a player getting to a point where they're about to uncover something that's really important and they roll poorly and in your head you're like, well, I guess you don't know it now. Yeah. Shit, now we're all kind of stuck at an impasse and the story has come to a, a complete halt. Uh, to that point, even if they roll low, just give them a piece of it 
and consider where you can lead them to find the next part of that tether and unravel it. You always want the, the, momentum, the momentum to be going forward. Yes. Unless it's like things that really don't matter and it's just for fun, you know, still give something, even on low rolls, at least to guide them in the direction that you think will be most fun for everybody at that table. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just my, my little input on that one. How about you? Oh, uh, shoot! I I like my answer less than yours, so I don't want to say it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I you can think, ask a question if you want. Yeah, no, I'm gonna answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I like to sort of okay. I think I get described as like uh, things in movies a lot, and I rely on that a lot with my players too, because every player, as, like, ostensibly grew up watching movies, and everyone just has a like written in their heart understands three act structure really well. So if you start cueing them for it, uh, they will sort of fall in line and begin to complete on themes and ideas and plots for you and help you, especially when it comes into like getting towards, like you don't want them to get too off the rails because we have to come in for a landing and like a short form thing. If you start setting it up like an act three, it's fun to watch good players that are also storytellers sort of line up their shot. They're like, got it, I understand like, sort of in my heart what the act structure of a movie is, of a heroic journey is, and I gotta start lining myself up for the end of that. And I think there's something inside good players that will say like, okay, I, I understand that this is where the end game is headed, and will like kind of turn towards the sun like a little flower and land that. That was all. That's great. Yeah. What was <laughs> you nervous about? I was nervous say, always. I will also, <laughs> I'll also say Abria is a great GM even in a player's seat, which oh. is like, mm-hmm. which is a very, if you don't know what I'm talking about, like, like, li- like, hey, Laren blighting that tree <laughs> is for, I have, I don't, I do, in, in 24 years of playing this game, I do not remember a PC doing something that literally made weight disappear off my back to that degree. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like for real. And that ability, like you're saying, because I think that you I think your style is incredibly cinematic, where knowing how to get to the beats, knowing the act structure, knowing like, and here's the thing that comes next. And there there is, you know, like what what higher commandment in storytelling is there than make it matter? And that's what I felt like with that, the with the blight on the tree and calamity or anything else like that. That instinct for storytelling and to drive things. Oh, another moment that I've never gotten to shout out yet was even the fucking gold bow in Calamity, <laughs> where you popped off and were like, I, that's the last piece of the machine I needed. <laughs> for you at home, in my I didn't show it on screen, but in my head when Bruce was like, that's the last thing I needed for the machine, I went, it is? <laughs> in my head, I didn't know it was, because this is a master storyteller. <laughs> and it, that, that, that GMing instinct of make it matter, make it count, hit the beat, keep it moving, is I feel like your style to a T. Yeah. Uh, and that, like, more than any, like, you know, like, honestly, maybe rather than saying rails of, like, rhythm, act structure, beats, what's the next thing coming in, that idea of, like, uh, uh, and using that as, like, uh, your rails structure are the moments that you know, like, you ever, like, not comp- complete a musical couplet, where there's that hanging thing, yeah. you know, I feel like in your DMing style, there's a lot of that of, like, how am I gonna keep you on the rails? Because I know that you want this note to resolve. I know there's this thing that you want there. Uh, and you I said that cool. Thanks. <laughs> I'm what he said is co- the cool way. <laughs> Wild. Wild. 
Thanks. Uh, it's true. It's true. I, I have not had the opportunity yet to like properly GM for you yet. I've played <laughs> under you. I'm gonna count that ESO game because that's I... true. But like that, that, and then like, like a proper like, you know, the ESO game was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was a one shot. It was for Brandon one shot. It was very chaotic and, and a lot of fun. <laughs> but like a, a, a proper session. Uh, I look forward to doing that. Yes. Playing under you is amazing. And to all the points you're, you said, like it, it's experienced players and people who have GM that know that the, taking the biggest swings and following that instinct when it happens is so much better than the safe decision more often than not. You know, there is something to be said about you know survival <laughs> and and not not pushing the button if it's to the detriment of everyone's fun at the table, but understanding when it makes sense not just for your character and the story but will elevate the stakes in a way that everyone around you trusts and appreciates. Uh, and that is something that is, uh, I wish, more common, and it only comes with experience and trust, and you do it every time, and it's so much fun to watch. Thank and you. I, I love it. I do want to say, I, I feel like I learned, uh, if, I, if I have uh, cool things from this, learning from watching you guys last summer, because getting to GM for both of you, and watching uh, sort of forever GMs untethered from having to be an entire world, and focusing all of that creative might, and the like, the trust and freedom of like, thank you for trusting me uh, in those moments, and just being extraordinarily joyful, and still having the full weight of your very good brains uh, focused to the single point of a character. Like, I remember going home from every one of those sessions for Miss Mag and for EXU and being like, oh man, that's, that's everything. That's why we do it. Like, you guys were ex just, fun it blew me away every time and it was so cool to come back and like try to do a little bit of that back at you and be like, this is what you look like a little bit, maybe like a tenth of it, it's very cool. Hey, the very first episode you ever GM'd for me, I immediately, you immediately did something and I was like, I'm stealing that and using it forever. <laughs> the fucking Abria signature of, and here's what you don't see. And I went, <laughs> and my head popped off my body and spun around in a little circle and went, you can do that? And then <laughs> settled back onto my shoulders. I mean, talk about cinematic, that was, yeah. I feel like that was an incredible moment of like, oh my God, of like, talk about inviting the audience in. And of course, like acknowledging the degree to which we are living in a story and to f even frame it in that way of here's what you don't see. That shit is still rocking my world a year later. What's so cool about this era of actual play, being, you know, people that grew up and some of us pre-internet, the older folks, um, and or, or playing in spaces where the only experiences you had gaming were the people that you met in person through social groups or work environments, and so your exposure to different styles of GMing was extremely limited. And so, like for me, up until I began running Critical Role, and other people started, you know, I began following their other streams and seeing people like you play. I only knew my style from the other friends who ran for me and me trying to improve myself in a vacuum. And I've learned so much in this short time from each of you and and I just continue to take notes and learn. And I love that we have this space now where we all uh, can make each other better by playing together and by watching other people out there with all the other amazing actual plays that exist out there and just kind of like seeing what resonates and, and taking inspiration from that and incorporating it. You know, there's you know, I see people like we all talk about like game masters, like you know, the top of the game. We're all still learning too, yeah. and we're all you know, we're 
we all have skills that, that lend very well to a lot of this, and we're all constantly learning from each other, and I think that that's, that excites me more than anything is the fact that, uh, even at this stage, I'm constantly taking notes. Yeah. It's a virtuous cycle. Oh, you're the best. Yeah. Oh, now we're all bathroom buddies. Uh, <laughs> before we finish this up, though, we do have the important question. Ooh. What are your favorite GM snacks? Yeah, Brennan. Let me be clear. Come this on, was put, this was put into this fucking questionnaire to come for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to explain something. Mm-hmm. If you're at home and you're afraid to tell your gaming group that you're a snacker, I've got your back, okay? Because it's okay to fucking snack, all right? When you're out there, let some of us sweat from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. Some of our bodies are betraying us constantly. Would I have chosen this paper white, fur covered, constantly sweating body? No, I wouldn't have. Does it require constant almonds? Yes. (laughs) Almonds all the time, okay? And I'm not gonna apologize because these two fucking elevated beings, these two hovering, uh, uh, what, what's the, what, what are the pre, the pre-Skexy, pre-Mystic light beings from the Dark Crystal? Oh God. You two, some of us are pod people, okay? I'm a little podling and I need to snack. If I could have another mouth in my back <laughs> so that I could, the biggest obstacle in my GMing all right, uh-huh. is that the same place I talk from is where the food needs to go. <laughs> Wait, what to get him for Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> a mouth in my bag. So that I can have a friend shoveling salami into an open <laughs> furnace in my torso while I narrate. And I'm not sorry. I like to snack. To answer your question, almonds. <laughs> Calamity was the least I've seen you snack, and that's how I knew that you knew it was real. I was like, this dude is not even eating almonds right now. Because I always ask for my almond tithe when we hang out. And I'm like, if you're eating an almond, I'm eating one. Yes, for sure. Well, even, but I would say there's something about the time of day we were shooting those and also, like, you know, D20 we do, because we'll do two talkbacks and two episodes in a day, which is... Nuts. That's a that's lot. That's great. We'll talk about that later. That's uh, wild. Uh, that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, uh, but yeah, that and and there. But there, I will say, although you know, in that last episode, there is the wall, and we call it's a it's a there's a moment of of caffeine need yeah. and b- blood sugar and whatever needle in that last thing. We hit the five hour mark, and everything in my body was like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you like the feeling of being on keto. Evens, yeah, you wake up in the morning, you're not, I get really hangry when I'm not on, on keto. I get very affected by my appetite moods. Mm. And my body went, hey, check it out. <laughs> if you don't slam a Coca-Cola in the next 30 seconds, you're gonna pass out. <laughs> you're gonna go to sleep. You're gonna go to sleep on your feet. And that's not a good place to do that. Uh, thank you to whoever blurred that in the, in the thing. I, and I remembered, I was like, Greek it, Greek it. And I went and threw it in the thing and threw it. You had so many banger lines, uh, your villain lines, incredible. Mm-hmm. Nothing put the fear of fucking God in me more than we're off keto. And I'm like, this is how we die. I thought we could win the calamity until you came in and went, I have sugar in my body. You're fucked. Popeye spinach (laughs) farts up in the the, 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 the
god. Oh man. I was slamming, I think, nutter butters back there. It was bad. <laughs> the scene behind the screen was not good. My favorite is there's one damned bag of Funyuns back there. And every time I walked past that, I was like, I want to eat them because I love Funyuns. But now we sit next to each other. My ESU season, we were all 48 feet apart. And I was like, I can eat all the funky ass snacks I want because no one will ever smell my breath because they're forever, they're in a different time zone. And now we're sitting next to each other and I can't have a romantic moment with Sam and just be like, onion. That's exactly what you do when you're next to <laughs> Sam, though. Next time. Now I know that. Next time. <sighs> you guys actually do that, though. Do you? I mean, like, for anxiety. real. It's just anxiety? It's partially anxiety. Uh, I don't think about it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm so here because if I'm not here, I'm deep inside here, which is never yeah. where I want to be during that. Um, and I think honestly, because I, I snacked at home a little bit when I used to run games. I think being online very early in, this is just the sad reality of being on the internet. I remember we used to snack more in the early days, and someone made a comment about me eating on a stream or something. I don't remember what it was, but it was enough to make me go like. Oh, I'm not going to eat anymore on stream. Oh, no. So, that's yeah, just a little subconscious moment. Internet does that to you. A little bit. Um, but mostly anxiety. Mostly it's just, you know, the the initial like 5 minutes of okay, we're about to go live. Every single time we we go, yeah. you know, to 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 re now recording, um the the appetite just vanishes. <laughs> I remember the look that I think it was Max gave me when 3 weeks into doing stuff here for long days. I was like, hey, sorry, I gotta run. Where's the bathroom? And you went, you've been here for like eight hour days for three weeks. What have you been doing? And I went, oh, holding it, because I don't acknowledge my nothing exists, <laughs> except for my weird little brain. Yeah, it's a tank. Until we're done. <laughs> Storage facility until yeah. the story's done. Exactly. <laughs> I think it's so funny, because it's it, it, like, the, if you were to ask me why do you stack, I would literally, full thread would be like, anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a blood sugar, but like, yeah. but well, also this is I've, but like this is the weird thing of like the flow state you get into as a GM is so bizarre because I feel like, I like, I I think I've told the story before, but like I got in a bad car accident with a bunch of friends. We had to rent a car. We got dropped off by the tow truck at a pizza place, Tony Pepperoni, and shout out to Tony, shout out Tony Pepperoni, <laughs> yeah, Tony Pepperoni, Henrietta, New York, shout out, thanks for the pizza, Tony. Um, uh, I have a, I have a, one of their staff shirts that inexplicably is the words Tony Pepperoni in a Batman symbol. No, there's no business relationship to DC at all. It's just literally, it's just a pizza place that likes Batman, uh, and that's literally it. But the, but we got there, and now I they're getting the cease and desist. Yeah, now they're getting the cease. Wait, cut it! No, I made it up. Uh, don't, please, Tony. I'm sorry. Um, but. The truly, the 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 thing was like, I got there and, and I was the only one old enough to rent a car. We were younger, we were in our twenties, and I got I ordered four pies. There were four of us. There were five of us. I got four full size pies, and I'm renting the car across the street, and I'm like, they've eaten all the pizza. They've eaten all of it. Oh, they didn't leave me any. And I got back, and no one had touched a slice. And I was like, guys, the pizza. Aren't you guys hungry? And my friend Molly was like, we just got in a car crash! <laughs> We're not hungry, man! And I was like, you and I process shock differently, uh, manja. And I fucking put one and a half to bed in the booth. Incredible. One and a half full wow. pies. Oh my goodness. The machine needs fuel. I respect that. That's probably healthier. Yeah, I just go Much home. healthier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll just we'll we'll learn from a distance and yeah. not actually uh, 
do anything you, to work you, in that hey, one glorious direction. almond like you're doing it. I'm yeah. proud of you. It's elves. It's elves and hobbits. Yeah, you guys have your Lembus bread, and I'm over here with Elevensies and second breakfast. And it's all <laughs> different strokes. We can all, yeah. yeah. I love yeah. it. Well, I think that was a, a fantastic note to we did it. this epic uh, GM roundtable. Yes. We're all going to head into the bathroom for voices time. Right oh, after voices this time. Goddamn right. Mm, I can't wait. Uh, thank you all for watching <laughs> this delightfully chaotic discussion. I love it so much. Thank you both so much for coming and uh, being a part of this and building off of this. And... Uh, uh, speaking of this, Todd uh, Reborn uh, campaign setting Reborn is available now, so you can bring the magic of Alexandria to your own table. Um, but uh, yeah, love you guys. Love you. Thank you so much, uh, and love you guys. Good night. Later. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on this adventure. To help new listeners discover the show, please give us a rating and review on whatever podcasting app you're listening on. Until next time, is it Thursday yet? <laughs>